Amen. Today's sermon text is 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. Uh, we'll consider verses 1 to 5 uh, this morning and uh, the following verses next week. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated, indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And this is God's word. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Amen. I usually write uh, my sermons on Monday, that is about 80% of the sermon, and then I fill in the little bits uh, left uh, throughout the week and try to edit and clean up stuff as the week goes on. And sometimes a lot happens between Monday and Sunday. I was upset already by this Ahmad uh, Albury murder. Many of you have followed that story. Um, many of us ran 2.23 miles uh, this past week in honor of his 26th birthday on Friday as this young man loved to run. And that was symbolic of the day in which he was brutally murdered, February uh, 26th, excuse me, February 23rd. And of course, all of this on top of this never-ending uh, quarantine and all of the sad stories we've been hearing related to this global pandemic that we're in. And then on Friday morning, I had a phone call that I missed and another phone call that I missed and finally I decided I should uh, call my friend back who uh, was, was calling me, uh, a friend who's usually very upbeat and very excited and very exuberant who normally doesn't shut up for about an hour uh, when he asked me to, to say something, but he was in a different mood as he told me that our friend Darren Patrick had died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Darren had been a friend of mine for many years and especially over the last two or three years. He left behind a grieving wife and four children. 
We had just texted multiple times over the last couple of weeks. Last year when the Nationals made it to the second round of the playoffs, Darren, who's a St. Louis fan, texted me and said, hey, I've got your ticket if you can get to St. Louis. He's been one of the, the greatest sources of encouragement to me over the past year. And I had no idea when I put down this sermon title, Grieved Saints Gladdened by the Gospel on Monday, that it would have such relevance for me. And I don't know who needs to hear this today, but I do. <laughs> I can't wait to hear what I've got to say. Uh, and with so much grief and so much sorrow in our world, so much death in our world, it's wonderful to read of the hope of the gospel that we, we read about here in First Peter. We started this new series where we're entitling God's people as Peter explains what it means to be the new covenant people of God. And it's a great privilege to be able to say that. We don't say that boastfully. We say that out of a sense of wonder and awe as 1 Peter chapter 2 reminds us, once you are not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Like the only way we can say we're God's people is by the incredible mercy of God. And so Peter is articulating for us what it means to be God's people. In fact, this is a letter written to God's scattered people, which we also can relate to as we feel so scattered in these days. We've said many times in the history of our church that the church is not a building you go to and it's not an event you attend, as important as those things are, but it's a people to whom you belong. And we're living in that reality. The significance of this letter is stated in many places. Uh, it's strongly stated at the very end of the letter, 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter says, I am, am declaring to you that which is the true grace of God. Chapter 5, verse 12, stand firm in it. This is the true grace of God. This is true Christian teaching. And which is why many scholars have said through the years things like, this is the most condensed New Testament resume of the Christian faith uh, in the New Testament. That is, there's so many things packed into this little letter. You have everything from uh, the good news of the gospel to living holy lives to how to honor those who are in authority, those who are in leadership. Uh, there's a section on marriage. Uh, we've got persecution. We've got all sorts of things in this letter, and it's condensed in just five chapters. Martin Luther believed it contained all that was necessary for a Christian to know to be a faithful believer. It covers so many important topics, but with all of that, it also gives us a beautiful portrait of Jesus. We see in 1 Peter that Jesus is the object of our faith as well as the pattern for our life. And Peter that's really going to press that home, that just as Jesus suffered, just as Jesus has left us an example, so we follow in his steps. And Jesus' resurrection life is our source of power. And so mingled throughout all of this letter with, with all of the different topics that Peter addresses, Jesus is uh, central. There's a strong emphasis on hope. We read some of that in chapter 1, this wonderful phrase, living hope. And you're going to see again and again and again uh, the subject of hope pop up in this letter as Peter is writing to suffering Christians. Joseph Parker, who was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon, once told a group of aspiring ministers, preach to the suffering and you will never lack a congregation. There is a broken heart in every pew. And I think we could add today, there is a broken heart on every couch, in every recliner, wherever you're at today. I told a group of uh, pastors this past week, it's, it's safe to assume everybody you meet 
is dealing with something difficult in their life. And it's also safe to assume that no one you encounter is over-encouraged. Therefore, let's assume that the person we're next to needs our encouragement. And Peter gives us a great uh, pattern for how to encourage those who are, who are discouraged, those who are dealing with grief and suffering. And it is in the gospel. And I want you to see how all of this is done in chapter 1. In verse 6, you get a sense of what's going on that sets the context when he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, you wouldn't normally put all of this in one, uh, one thought, would you? You've got Peter here saying that you greatly rejoice. It's a compound Greek word that means to jump much or jump with joy. That gets, it's a, it's a, a, an intense uh, kind of joy to leap, to spring up, to gush forth great joy. And I don't know, I don't know if that's you, that you naturally are this kind of person. Uh, and then when you add suffering to it, it does seem a little strange. And Peter says it's because you are, you're suffering though for a little while. Now, how long is that? Well, that's about 70 years or so, if we're fortunate. It's all of life in a fallen world. That's a little while. When you look at it in the broad scheme of eternity, it is a little while. In 27 billion years, when we're in the presence of Jesus, our sufferings in this life will seem short. That doesn't mean they're not real. That doesn't mean they're not painful. It doesn't mean they're not grievous. In fact, they are. But it's just for a little while. And the good news for the Christian is this life is as close to hell as we're ever going to get. Amen. This is it. This is our little while. And what gives hope in the middle of grief, what gives hope in the middle of suffering is that we have the good news of the gospel, of this living hope. And so we grieve. And maybe you're grieving right now. And I pray this message would encourage you. One mother told me just this past week, when I think of parenting, one word comes to mind, grief. And I don't know if that's your experience or not. And if it's not parenting, it's something else. And, and Peter has a he has a junk drawer category for your sufferings when he says various trials, verse 6. This word various means many colored. It's the same word he uses later in the book to describe spiritual gifts, that there are various spiritual gifts. There, there are various kinds of trials in this little while that you and I live, in this brief life that we have. It could be relational conflict. It could be job insecurity. It could be an unbelieving spouse which Peter will address. It could be opposition. It's a major part of this letter. Christians being ridiculed, being marginalized by society, being threatened, losing honor, or even persecution. And so the question for all of us in this little while is how do we endure? How, how can we uh, live with any sense of uh, encouragement? And if you go outside of the Bible, you, you, you often find some, some wrong counsel. You have trite counsel, like just be positive, pal. If life hands you a lemonade, or hands you a lemonade, yeah, uh, make a, make a yeah. lemonade, uh, yeah. hand you a lemon, you make a lemonade. If they hand you a lemonade, you make some, freeze it, and, and make a cold drink out of it. Uh, and I just want to throw a lemon at that person, you know, uh, who says that. Or home remedies, you know, you just need to eat more wheatgrass. That's what you need in your life. You need more wheatgrass, and you'll be happy. And then there's terrible theology, like the prosperity gospel, that tells you if you're suffering, you don't actually have enough faith. And then there's kind of the over-spiritualized 
Christian message that if you become a Christian, you will have no more suffering. And then what is our response to these trials? Well, the wrong response is to, to be angry at God or to envy. That's a temptation in trials. I want their life. I want their kids. I want his job. Or there's the temptation to self-pity. Or you can go the route of functional saviors. You can turn to something other than the gospel to give you what only God can really give you. Now, Peter gives us a better way. In your grievous trials, let your heart be gladdened by the gospel. And so what I want to do in the next two weeks is hopefully help gladden your soul and my soul as we think about this life and all of the trials that it brings. <clears throat> We're going to look at six reasons to rejoice, three this week and three next week. But before we even get to those three, I've got to deal with verses one and two, the greeting. All right. So number one, uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Let's stop right there with Peter. We're not getting very far. Uh, one of the key leaders of the early church, he was the original, the rock. Some of you guys know the rock. This was the original rock, uh, Peter, his, his nickname. An extraordinary story of uh, confession. Jesus is a Christ. An extraordinary story of denial of Jesus. And then an extraordinary story of restoration and preaching and leadership, all due to the grace of Jesus. I, I've always been struck by Luke chapter 22 in regard to Peter, when Jesus tells him, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And then he says, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Isn't that beautiful? You see, 1 Peter is one of the ways Peter has strengthened his brothers. He experienced renewing grace by Jesus. And maybe you have experienced terrible failure in your own life. Peter's story encourages us. Jesus uses restored failures. And 1 Peter is a great testimony of one of the ways through, for 2,000 years or so now, Peter has been strengthening his brothers and sisters because Jesus renewed him. He's writing this letter sometime in the late 50s or early 60s. He's writing from Rome, which he uh, calls Babylon at the end of the book. Tradition has that Peter was martyred during Nero's reign, and shortly thereafter, Mark wrote his gospel in light of Peter's uh, uh, story and Peter's account of things. <clears throat> Peter is then writing as a guy who knows what it's like to sin. He knows what it's like to struggle. He knows what it's like to suffer. And he knows what it's like to experience the renewing grace of Jesus and be used arguably greater than anyone in history. Now, some have wondered, as you're looking at 1 Peter, could this guy actually write a letter? <laughs> some have wondered that about me. Uh, how can that guy write a book? Um, Peter wrote one that got in the Bible. That's quite an accomplishment. And uh, that's often brought up because he was a fisherman. He was from Galilee. They had an accent. Uh, no one deemed these guys to be intelligent. And you can see that throughout the, the, the New Testament. Um, but we should remember that Peter was a middle-class fisherman that knew Greek from his youth, as everyone up in that region would have. And when you read uneducated in Acts chapter 4, that doesn't mean illiterate. It means that he lacked rabbinic training. Peter did not have formal training. But you know what? He had been with Jesus for three years. So I think he's qualified to write a book of the Bible. <laughs> like today, people brag about, who'd you study under? And Peter could say, Jesus. 
So yeah, I do think this is uh, Peter's letter. I think Peter uh, possibly could have used this uh, secretary at the end of the letter, though I think that's more of the letter carrier than a secretary, but we'll get to that later. Um, now, he says here that he's writing to those who are in dispersion, those who are dispersed throughout what is now modern-day Turkey. And he lists these uh, provinces of uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, these would make up today the equivalent of New York State, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. So you're looking at a pretty large uh, area of uh, modern-day Turkey. And these Christians had been expelled uh, from Rome. The best theory, in my opinion, is that when Claudius issued an edict to expel the Christians from Rome, uh, that these Christians were expelled. And we know that Claudius repopulated all five of these areas with deportees. And you can read in Acts chapter 18, verse 2, about Aquila, who was from Pontius, uh, because uh, he was expelled from Rome during Claudius's edict. And so if that is true, they're dislocated in two ways. They have been removed from their homeland, and they're also not in, not in heaven. Well, we, are, we can identify with the strangerness, as uh, every Christian can, because we are looking for the city that is to come. But they were kind of double exiles in that they were also expelled uh, from their homeland. We have a, a map of just modern day, or, or, or not modern day, actually the, uh, the period in which Peter is writing uh, up here with uh, Bithynian Pontius uh, Cappadocia. It's just amazing. You look at all these cities, how much happened in Turkey uh, in the New Testament. It's quite remarkable. Uh, and so it's a big, big uh, piece of land that Peter is writing to, people who are now scattered away from Rome uh, into these particular provinces. And Peter is addressing various problems throughout this letter. They're dealing with physical and psychological pressure. They're dealing with social, social ostracism. Um, there is the pool of their old way of life. These are probably largely Gentile Christians, I believe, that Peter is writing to. Uh, they're in a, a non-Christian worldview, surrounds them. Uh, there's some poor behavior, it seems, within the fellowship itself. There are some who are doubting God's promises. And then there is Satan's constant attacks. Those are just some of the problems that pop up in this letter. And Peter wants this to, to sink into these exiles, that God has chosen them. Notice what a phrase he uses here when he calls them elect exiles. So in one sense, they are rejected because they're exiles. In another sense, they are selected because God has chosen them. He wants them to know that even though they're not at home, God has lavished his love upon them before the foundation of the world. And so this strange little phrase that's put together highlights, if you will, the vertical and horizontal dimension of a Christian. We are gods, that is true, but we're exiles, we're not at home. And this great doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation is a source, as it is elsewhere in the Bible, of comfort to those who are suffering, to those who are struggling. Despite persecution, he says, you can be assured of God's purposes for you. You can be assured of God's grace toward you. And you notice how Trinitarian this opening is as well. It's according to foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, chosen by the consecration of the Spirit, chosen for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. So our election originates with God the Father in that he has 
foreknown us. Uh, this word does not simply mean that he knew ahead of time uh, certain things, though that's true, but foreknown means foreloved. Uh, for example, you've got this verse in Amos chapter 3, verse 2, where God says to Israel, I have known you out of all the families of the earth. And it doesn't mean he didn't know the other families of the earth. He did. But he had set his affection upon Israel. Uh, this, this foreknowledge has a sense of special love. It has a sense of, of nearness, of affection. And so he says here that you have been chosen by the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, this doesn't mean we uh, are not to exercise faith and that obedience is unimportant. In fact, Peter will get to that in due time. Uh, and that's one of the great mysteries of our faith, isn't it? And then he says you're consecrated by the Spirit. That is, our salvation is made operative. It is experienced through uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. Our faith is experienced by the Spirit from beginning to end. We are consecrated. This speaks of God setting us apart, a definitive act of making us positionally holy. This is how we can be called it later in the book, a holy priesthood, because the Holy Spirit sets us apart and makes us unique assures us of pardon, and transforms us more into the image of Jesus. And all of this is ex expressed by faith in and obedience to Jesus. So the Spirit does not lead us into some mystical, vague, generic faith. The Spirit leads us into a Christ-centered faith, a Christ-exalting faith. He brings us to Jesus, who brought the new covenant by his blood. So we don't have some generic spirituality. We have a Christ-centered faith. Now, this, is, this phrase here, obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood, uh, is a reference, I do believe, back to Exodus 24 uh, in that covenant ceremony, the, which involved a pledge of obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of an animal. Now you go back and read that later if you like. And it's this idea that God can't begin this relationship apart from sacrifice. And the people pledge their obedience in response to this. Of course, we know their story was one of great disobedience. But this is Peter's way of speaking of the new covenant people of God. We have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus once and for all. We also need a regular cleansing, right? But that is uh, uh, through this, the, the work of Christ and the sprinkling of his blood, we are empowered for obedience to Jesus. We have been chosen for obedience, made possible through the death of Jesus Christ. All of this to say to those who are scattered, and we say to all of you who are scattered today, that our fundamental identity is not in we live in Pontus or Galatia or Raleigh or Roseville. It's that we are in Christ Jesus. We are God's people. And in your suffering, remember this. We are elect exiles. We are God's, and we're not home yet. But we're going to get there. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. I pray it is as we read this letter. And now we're ready for the number one reason to rejoice. And I'm 23 minutes in. I was committing myself to 30 minutes only uh, this Sunday, which means we might not get past verse 3, Donnie. No, keep going. Keep going. He begins by praising God, which is not what you really want to do in your suffering. Uh, but Peter says here, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Father is to be celebrated in good times and bad times. 
for who he is and what he has done. Often trials blur and blind our view of God's goodness. They blur and blind our view of his faithfulness, of his mercy. But Peter begins one holy run-on sentence in verse 3. It's just one sentence in Greek. Kids, this is not how you're supposed to write unless you're writing the Bible. Okay? And you're not. You're going to write the Bible. Okay? Let's get that straight. Uh, we're, not, we're not creating cult leaders at Imago Dei. Um, now, why is it that he can't stop? He's writing this holy run-on sentence. It's similar to the way Paul does in Ephesians 1. It's because he's talking about salvation. Verses 3 to 12 are all about salvation, various aspects of the wonder of our salvation. And Peter can't take a break, breath. He, he can't even stop for a period. <laughs> I used to write really long sentences in my PhD paper. It reminds me of, and Shattuck should write in the margin, by a period, you know. Uh, Peter, he, he, by a period, pal. He can't stop for a period because he's so overwhelmed by the grace and mercy of God. And he praises him, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before he gets to the benefits of our salvation and all that it entails, he says something unique about God in that he is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our Father, right? Part of the glory of the Father is the way he relates to Jesus. Again, Peter is articulating a, a wonderful doctrine of God in just a few verses here in the beginning. And then the first thing he mentions in regard to the fatherhood of God is what we call in theology regeneration or being born anew, being born again. We have new life in Christ. And if you're not a Christian and you're watching this, you need to know that we're not asking you to clean your life up a little bit or turn over a new leaf. We're saying that the gospel promises, promises you new life. That's what it means there to be born again and to be born anew. Now, this regeneration does not perfect us but it does change us. It changes us thoroughly. We mentioned uh, on the virtual uh, lobby, the voyage of the Dawn Treader, Lewis depicts this change in the previously obnoxious Eustace, and which he says uh, in this little book, it would be nice and fairly near true to say from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses, there were still many days when he could be very tiresome, but most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. Mm. And the cure really has begun. God has given us a new heart. He's given us a new identity. We become a new creation. And as we see throughout the Bible, regeneration is not optional. It's necessary. Jesus told Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes people wonder, how do you know if I've been born anew? And I like to say, how do you know you were born? It's by the fact that you are alive today. <laughs> it's not just that you have a birth certificate. You may or may not have your birth certificate. But those who are born anew have life today. They've passed from death to life. And what's important is not that you can necessarily identify the second in which you are passed from death to life, but that the fact that you have life today. One of the signs of that new life is later in 1 Peter chapter 2, that you crave Scripture like a newborn baby craves milk. You desire that. You see, being born anew means you have new affections. You have new desires. You have relapses, like Lewis mentions. You're not, perf you're not perfect, but you're new. You're alive. And this regeneration is part of the larger uh, 
cosmic regeneration that will happen in the new creation. Those who have been made new creations are those who will enjoy the new creation. And we praise God for that. Even in our suffering, you see, we go to this doctrine and we're reminded of all that is ours now and all that will be ours in the future. Now, how does all this transpire? Well, go over to chapter 1, verse 23. Peter says regeneration happens through the gospel. And he says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. This is how God brings people to life. You may read it in your Bible personally at home or read a, a book or a track or hear a sermon. But God uses the good news of the gospel to bring dead people to life. And he says all of this is attributed to God's mercy. You see that? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. So we don't deserve this. This is similar to what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 4. God being rich in mercy made us alive together with Christ. It's a work of his mercy. And it's related to, Peter says, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which gives us this living hope. Regeneration tied to the resurrection. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Made possible through his resurrection. Paul says in Ephesians 2, we have been raised with Christ, as he does also in Colossians 3. Right now we share in Jesus' resurrection victory. We are united to him. And this gives us living hope. What a wonderful phrase. Living hope. Hope is mentioned, as I mentioned, it's a big theme in the book, about five times in the book, but it underlies the whole tone of the letter. The whole tone of the letter is hope. So we're not just uh, considering the, just the, the use of the word, but the spirit of hope permeates 1 Peter. And he introduces it right here in verse 3, this living hope. In God's mercy, he's made us alive. And this new birth brings a bright future for you and I. And the, the rest of the verses will unpack this glorious future. Christians are those who have a living hope. And you know hope is a powerful incentive for pressing on, for enduring. How many of you moms out there have a kid who won't eat dinner and then you say, I promise you dessert if you finish that dinner. And all of a sudden, little Johnny starts eating that dinner that he previously uh, would not touch because you have a promise out there. There's, there's a hope of Moose Tracks ice cream or something like that. Uh, and, and now he's eating. Well, we have something out ahead of us that helps us to endure that which we don't enjoy right now. We have something better than dessert, but it's coming. So save your fork, okay? Hold on to that fork because something better is coming. I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the day he died, less than 24 hours before he was, was put to death by the Nazis, was allowed to lead a worship service with prisoners. And his biographer tells the story of, of uh, Bonhoeffer taking as his text 1 Peter 1.3 and also taking Isaiah 53 verse 5, by his wounds we have been healed, which Peter quotes in chapter to as well. This, this was his text. Just, if you knew you were dying in 24 hours, what text would you talk about? What would you dwell on? This is a good one. 
we are those who have a living hope. Bonhoeffer told the man who was in the cell with him when the executioner came and said, it's time. He says, this is the end, but for me, it's the beginning of life. That's a man living with his living hope. This is what God saves us to, living hope. Let us be people who are characterized by such hope. Well, he says in verse 4, we've been saved to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This inheritance is our portion in the new creation with all of its blessings. This is what we will inherit. As Jesus says in the Beatitudes, the meek will inherit the earth, a new earth. We have an eschatological hope. We have what uh, Hebrews talks about, how uh, our, our forefathers in the faith were looking forward to that city which is to come. Inheritance uh, obviously is an echo of the Old Testament as Israel was preparing to inherit this land which was typological, a foreshadowing of a greater land, a new creation. We will inherit the earth. The glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. And he says this inheritance is imperishable, that it's never destroyed. The land of Israel was war-torn throughout its history. Uh, and, but he says, no, this is imperishable, a word that is only used, by the way, of eternal realities, such as God himself or God's word or resurrection bodies. That's what we're, we're inheriting, an, an imperishable inheritance. <clears throat> it's undefiled in that it's clean. The land was defiled before Israel was in it and later defiled by their idolatry. But the new earth will not be defiled. It's unfading in that it won't spoil, it won't diminish. We will never get bored with new creation, with new heaven and new earth. It's not fading like some of you guys out there, your hairline. It is fading. It, 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 it is falling away. Uh, but but don't, don't dismay. We'll get, a new, we'll get some new hair also in this, this coming uh, inheritance, in this coming glory. And I'm going to have some glorious bangs. And he says here, it is kept in heaven for you. And underline that little phrase, for you. And this is what get, makes you gladdened by the gospel. God has reserved your place, Christian. I don't know if you've ever gotten on a plane before and you see that someone is in your seat and it creates a really uncomfortable conversation. Or maybe you go to a sports game and somebody is in your seat and it creates this strange moment. But even worse is when you go to a hotel that you have booked and you, are, you arrive late at night and they say, well, I'm sorry, I, I can't find your name. I don't see the reservation anywhere. Well, that's not going to happen with glory. It is reserved. God's spot for you is reserved. And when you set your mind on the new creation to come, on the fact that you will be with the Lord Jesus forever, it makes such a radical difference in your life now. You see, if we really believe this, it'll help us sleep at night. You won't feel like you have to grasp everything in this life. You'll hold things loosely. You'll be able to love people. I love how Colossians 1.5 says that we love all the saints because of the hope laid up for us in heaven. You won't fear death. All of this made possible through Jesus Christ, the one who is worthy to open the scrolls, who alone is pure and without blemish, the undefiled one who has cleansed us. Finally, there is protection. This inheritance is kept for us. And then Peter says in verse 5, we are kept for it. 
He says here, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is military language of guarding, of protecting. How confident can we be that we will enjoy this inheritance? No one is more powerful than God. You are protected by God's power. God is guarding us. <laughs> That's how secure we are. And no disease, no disorder, and no death can threaten God's powerful protection Amen. of us. God. God keeps us. If you say, I can't hold on, the well, good news is Jesus holds you. Mm. I can't endure. The good news is Jesus carries you. Mm. He sustains you by his power. We need to be guarded, and we are. When Kimberly and I were adopting our kids from Ukraine, one of them on the last day, uh, when we told them we're going home, she said, forever? I said, yeah, forever. And when you say yes to Jesus Christ and you are born anew, he says, I'm going to take you home forever. I've got you. Is there anything as sweet today in knowing that we are kept by the power of God? Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We are safe. And it's good to know in very uncertain times, isn't it, that our greatest security this morning is not in our economy, our ultimate security is not in our ability. It's not even in our families. Our ultimate security is found in our God. We are guarded by God's power. And if you're not a Christian, you need to know that the opposite is also true. You are not safe if you are not in Christ. But you can trust him. You can believe in him. As I just said, the way one is born anew is by hearing the gospel. And by God's grace, you're hearing the gospel today. And if you can turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus, you get to enjoy the security and all of these promises. And Jesus tells us that all who, are, who come to him, he will raise them up on the last day. So the last question, the last point of these verses I want you to see here is that we are protected in a certain way. Like, what are we protected from? When he says here in verse 5, we're being guarded or protected through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's not a protection from suffering. You actually will suffer. It's not a protection from even persecution. Some will be persecuted. It's not a protection from death. Peter, who's writing, would be martyred. But it's that our faith is upheld. He will uphold our faith. It is through faith. He keeps us believing. He keeps us trusting until that day comes, until the, the final curtain uh, comes down, until the last stage of redemptive history happens. He will not abandon us. You see, those with real saving faith are kept by God's power. We don't have a perfect faith, but we have an enduring faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, the final stage of redemptive history when Christ returns to bless and to judge. Here the focus is on the blessing of Christ's return, the not yet part of our salvation. We are protected for this day. We are being guarded for this day. And when we see him and when we inherit this new creation, we will be more at home than we've ever been in our entire lives. That's where we're headed. So, saints, I pray that you'll be gladdened by the gospel in the midst of your grief. And I pray that on your dying breath, 
you will remember these words. We are kept by God's power. To the praise of God the Father. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for the hope that we see in this remarkable epistle penned by one who knew the grace of Jesus. I pray that you would enlarge our hearts with adoration and love for our Savior, that we would be instruments in our Redeemer's hand, being people who convey and speak the grace of the gospel to others. Gladden our own souls, Lord, we pray for every grieving heart who's tuned in today. Fix our eyes on what is to come when we see our Savior and behold him. Until that day, we rest in your protecting power and we give you praise for this mercy that has made us new and given us this new hope. In Jesus Christ we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.